Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy that guides you through the complex world of the energy transition. My name is David Weston and joining me on the pod today is the recently well-travelled Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi Jan, where have you been lately? Uh, I've been in the Netherlands uh, to speak at the heat pump uh, summit there um, in um, the nice city of The Hague and then been to Brussels uh, and Istanbul last week and tomorrow I'm going to Prague. So it's quite a busy, it's quite a busy month, a bit too busy for my taste, but um, December will be very quiet. So I'm looking forward to a much quieter Christmas period. That is definitely a lot of traveling. Uh, I'm heading to Dubai next week for the COP conference. So that'll be very exciting. Well, luckily, I have, don't have to go this time. I will miss out on the, the COP uh, craziness. Um, that is an exhausting thing to do, but uh, good luck. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you might turn this year. a live recording of a podcast there. Who knows? Eventually. Yeah, eventually. This week, we're talking about the US energy market, uh, and it is as vast as it is complicated. With a number of different grid systems and different operators, varying climates and local nuances, as well as a fractured political discourse, America seems to be a difficult place for new energy companies to make a successful splash and an impregnable market for outsiders to gain traction. But that's what UK utility Octopus Energy did in 2020 with the acquisition of Evolve Energy, a Silicon Valley-based startup. We've already spoken to Octopus's Greg Jackson on the podcast early in 2022, one of our earliest What Matters episodes. And today we welcome Michael Lee, CEO of Octopus Energy in the US. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here today. Thanks for having me. What motivated Octopus to enter the U.S. Uh, energy market? Look, I think um, the U.S. market is very similar in many ways, yet very different in others. And I think the opportunity of the U.S. is that it's the one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest, electricity market. Quite dynamic, quite complex, but at the same time, a huge opportunity for, especially in the Western world, us to go and decarbonize millions of households uh, throughout the country. Uh, Michael, we we had Greg on the program, uh, I think, pretty much two years ago. Uh, I think it was a, the December episode or maybe the January episode, but it was, um, I think, as, as Dave was saying, one of the earlier ones. And um, it's still one of, I think, our go-to episodes. Um, uh, it, it went very, very well indeed. Um, so no pressure there for you today. Uh, but I mean, one of the things that, that struck us, I think, was that um, when, when Greg was talking about Octopus, that it was very much... Um, a sort of tech company, you know, not not sort of a sort of the the classic energy company, but really, uh, you know, Greg came from a background that wasn't energy. Uh, I think it was telecommunications and tech, um, and and he then applied what he learned there to the energy sector. Um, and and I think you just mentioned um, you potentially you have a similar background, but that would be interesting to find out sort of wh- whether you're trying to replicate sort of Greg's experience of entering the energy sector uh, in 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 the US now, um, and maybe uh, going down a, a very similar path. Look, I think the organization continues to have its same similar strengths in every single country that we participate in. Uh, my background is slightly different, but you know, I came to a very similar conclusion that Greg did as you know, he built Octopus and I built my original retailer, Evolve, which was acquired by Octopus, which is that the energy system is transforming. My background is project finance for large wind and solar projects. And I just saw that become a quote-unquote, investable industry, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was no such thing as an asset class within the world of renewables. And now that there is a significant amount of traditional investors that are super excited to deploy their capital and invest in renewables, you know, a symptom of that is that we have so many projects in the interconnection queue waiting to be built. There is a lot of capital that has been drawn into the industry. Now, 
where I was coming from was, okay, what's the second order of effects? What happens when you bring on all this wind and all this solar? To me, it's, hmm, I think we need to use this power a little bit differently. And the way to do that is by empowering the customer and really focusing on the customer. And if you can focus on the customer, they'll come along for a ride. And that that focus needs to be about cheaper prices, uh, automation for when renewables are abundant, to use as much as possible um, and reward them and give them a little pocket of joy for coming along on this new type of experience on this energy transition. And they can actually be the centerpiece for building the fundamentals for why we are now what we call in the energy industry, inverting the grid, meaning having more demand become flexible as supply becomes abundant and low carbon, we need pockets of demand to come in and out and use power when it's abundant. So I think we have a very similar view of where this is all going, which is so exciting. I think we just got there through different places. Um, Again, and then my background was being in Silicon Valley, just seeing all these EVs and thermostats and everything having connectivity to them, yet not being empowered to actually be used for energy optimization and, again, building beautiful customer experiences. So that type of insight allowed me to really say, hey, what does the energy sector need for its own energy transition in order to get to the next phase? Absolutely. So is Octopus in the US taking a similar approach to its uh, European and UK counterpart, accessing the consumers and empowering the consumers? Yes. So the US energy markets are very complex. We have 50 different states and While there is some federal legislation around energy, the complexity is that each state actually makes their own rules about how energy markets work, who gets to sell power, what that power is priced at. And so we effectively have 50 little countries worth of power rules that are bridged under the umbrella of the United States of America. So it is quite complex to navigate each state's requirements. We have uh, energy markets uh, that encompass most, but not all states. These are, you know, what we call ISOs here in the U.S. Independent system operators. They set the rules for how power is auctioned off every five or fifteen minutes, and that kind of creates the price expressions for us to go optimize around. So, how we do that will change state by state based on the rules. Uh, Texas, um, while It's not the first place people think about when they think about renewables. Actually, what I think is going to be the epicenter of the energy transition, and this is where our U.S. headquarters are, we have the ability to sell power directly to customers, price it how we want, experiment with innovative rates and products like Intelligent Octopus, which is also in the U.K., and optimize for all types of devices and signals to really bring low-cost power to customers. How we do that in other states will be different flavors of that. Sometimes it'll be our own uh, slightly different version for a state like New York or Pennsylvania or Illinois. Sometimes it'll be through licensing our software and other very what we call vertically uh, regulated states or integrated states. And these are places like Florida and Colorado where you have effectively one state level utility that is governed by the state regulator and they own the power plants, they own the transmission and distribution lines, and they own all the customer relationships. And so we can help those organizations transform their experience through the things that we're learning and iterating through building our own retailer and thus our own software that is also relevant for those organizations. You just mentioned the headquarters there of the Octopus uh, branch in the US. I've just been to the uh, London uh, Octopus headquarters um, not long ago, actually. It was I think it was a couple of weeks back, um, and it's 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 grown a lot, of course, um, as the company has has expanded. Uh, but it, I'm just curious what that looks like. So if if you if we were we were to able to to walk into your uh, offices right now, what would we see? I mean, how many people? Uh, what's the setup? Um, I, I I just for for listeners, the uh, Octopus headquarters in London is it feels more like you're going into a Silicon Valley company, really. Um, it reminded me of uh, what I'd read about Google and, and, and companies like that, um, but really didn't feel like an energy company. So I'm, I'm curious what the US um, headquarters looks like. 
So we're right in the downtown of Houston. Uh, again, people don't think of the energy transition of coming from Texas, but this is the epicenter of the energy industry. And we are with all of these large entities here, but we are definitely our own uh, quirky little organization with a lot of pink, a lot of fun, and uh, honestly, a lot of tech. So we, yes, we do a lot of cool stuff here at the office. One of the things is that we have a 100 kilowatt hour battery that pulls from the grid, stores power, and then sends power back to the grid right here in the office. We can also island the office, so that way if there's a multi-hour power outage, we can be self-sufficient on our own electricity that we're capturing from a prior event on the grid. And we're trading that power in the wholesale power markets uh, from the heart of our office and exporting it back to the grid when the grid is in need and giving us that price signal that, hey, this is a very valuable time for anyone that has a kilowatt hour, send it on back. And so we're we're actually doing the things that we're encouraging our customers to do. We're doing it right here in our office here in Houston. Are the customers quite open to this uh, change in relationship, I guess, with your utility? Um in, you know, American are quite known for their entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so are they, are they quite open to this sort of idea of controlling their energy usage and being able to uh, sell it back to the grid and, and things like that, something that they perhaps haven't had the opportunity to do before? Look, again, every version of this is going to be a little bit different in each state. Uh, I would say Texas is where our product is the most dynamic. So I'll kind of talk to you about that one first. Uh you know, look, we we do talk about control. We do talk about all the cool stuff that we do on the tech side. But in a very octopus way, we actually just talk about the outcome to a customer, right? And that outcome to a customer is lower power prices, and we can help you get there. And so we have a standard product where in the U.S., people are used to buying their power on a per kilowatt hour basis. Our intelligent product is about 20% cheaper for controlling your EV, another 20% cheaper if you control your air conditioner. And we use about five to seven times more power here in Texas than a traditional energy customer does in the UK. And so you can imagine saving 20, 40% on your power bills is quite meaningful here when volumes are quite high. And actually, when we think about the energy transition, this is where a lot of customers are going, not just Texans, not just Americans. But as we replace the petrol bill with an electricity bill, then it becomes really important to dynamically manage when and how customers are pulling from the grid. And we can create this beautiful loop where the more devices you interconnect into our software, the cheaper your power price. And so we can relate the energy transition to actually deflationary events, meaning you get a cheaper power price for everything that you get along the energy transition and connect it into our software. And of course, those are all a bunch of words that the average customer doesn't think about. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, then absolutely you think about. But I think the, the end of the day, we just talk about ways in which our customers can get cheaper power. Power is a large piece of their overall budgets. Is becoming a bigger portion of their budget. And so walking people through that loop that says, hey, you can get an even cheaper price if you get one more thing and connect it into our software system allows for us to have a very different conversation than anyone else in the market. And so as we think about, you know, right now in the United States, the conversation number one is inflation. We as an organization are actually conversation number one is cheaper, right? So that allows us to go have a very meaningful conversation to customers who are really focused on trying to create lower cost saving or lower costs within their monthly bills. You mentioned Texas um, uh, there, Michael. And of course, in Europe, we followed quite closely uh, what happened. I think it was in 20. Uh, 21, uh, I believe, in February, where um, there was significant um, sort of critical event in, in Texas, um, uh, I think with, with outages that lasted um, for quite a long, long time uh, and people, some people freezing in their homes <laughs> because there was no power. Um, I mean, to what extent do you think the products that you offer, the, you know, the demand flexibility that you talked about, 
um, can help address uh, the likelihood of such events occurring or hopefully not occurring again uh, in the future, given you know the the market um, and and the generation that we have in Texas, which is um, is quite unique, isn't it? Because Texas isn't just um, your average market; it's it's quite unique. You might want to explain a little bit what what makes Texas different. Um, I think partly because it's 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 not connected quite in the same way as other energy markets um, are, um, but I think also very very um, uh, high usage of electricity, which you already alluded to in in your in your remarks. But any 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 thoughts on um, uh, the role uh, of Octopus uh, and and your products in in maybe avoiding or aiding um, the, the the nature of some of those events that that I just described. Mm. So I think what you're talking about is uh, Winter Storm Yuri that happened in February of 2021, and that was a very challenging situation. You know, Texas is at some points as far south as Miami, so we don't get cold weather very often, and we definitely don't get snow very often. That was a very extreme event. And what we learned about that event is that while it came across as a power issue, uh, of course it was a power issue when power plants can't produce power, the reality is that it was a fuel issue. We are so reliant here in Texas where we have the Permian Basin on natural gas. And so we have so much natural gas generation that when we have issues with that fuel type, power plants have to turn off. And specifically around that event, we had pipelines and wells that were somehow enrolled in a demand response program. And so when the grid became critical, they actually shut off. And then when those shut off, we lost fuel within the state of Texas and power plants were shutting down. Not because they were freezing over, although some of them were, they were mostly shutting down because they just lost access to fuel. And that really highlighted how singularly focused we are on both fossil fuel generation as well as very centralized bulk power plants. And so as we think about the role going forward, decentralization is super important. That allows us to have a lot more resource mix uh, uh, diversity that allows us to have uh, more optimization at the local level and kind of heat uh, customers' houses when we do see, you know, in the middle of the day, the solar came out and we had, you know, there was one power source that was quite reliable during that issue. It was actually the daytime solar. So we, to me, we need to build a lot more solar. We need to do a lot more demand flexibility within the daytime hours to preheat the homes. So that way we're using a lot less in the evening hours during the most extreme events. Now, of course, uh, the regulatory apparatus here is very gas-focused, and so those may not be the same conclusions that uh, the regulatory apparatus came, came up with. Uh, and, and so we're, we're working with the state and we're working with the regulators to really show that uh, we're not necessarily in a better position today. You know, we're in a little bit better position, but as we really think about the energy future, what we really need isn't... How do we manage for the next URI? What we really need is how do we have an agile set of tools that help us figure out whatever the next challenge is and have us be able to deploy millions of different customers and very complex but unique and localized solutions to help balance the grid for whatever is that local constraint. And that will enable us to be a lot more resilient in the future for, because let's face it, we're not going to have the exact same problem probably again. It's going to be slightly different or completely different. And being ready for the next set of challenges is that we have a wide diversity of tools and that diversity is going to come from distributed assets. And of course, that's going to come from customer centricity and customer engagement. How open to those arguments are regulators and lawmakers as well? Are they Do they see the argument there and understand that? Or are they still very much focused on the traditional setup of the energy system and, and the providers of the energy? You know, it's scary. It's scary for regulators. They see the challenge and what they really just want is to be able to push a button and make all their challenges go away. And unfortunately, in the world of complexity, there is no button that they get to push to make all their problems go away. 
They, they, that, that's why they are so focused on replicating the solutions of the past without realizing that what they're creating is just more reliance on fossil fuels, which again is the linchpin and the challenge of the system in the past that shut down. And so we are becoming more reliant in some ways on those tools because they view them as, hey, they were solutions for the past 10 or 20 years. Let's double down on those types of solutions without realizing that those were the same types of assets that had the most trouble generating during that time. So regulators, um, they're not quite there yet. Some of them are, but the inertia continues to be, let's repeat the past. Uh, The surprising thing is that it's customers that actually see through all this. They're the ones where the power has gone out. And they say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I just want my own solar product on my roof. I want a battery so that way I can store some of it. And if you're saying that dynamic loads and and managing those loads and optimizing them if the power does go out can get me even longer duration of uh, self-sufficiency, then that's a pretty Texas mindset right there where they just want they just want to be self-sufficient. And that message alone has been the focus for customers going solar, getting batteries and being part of the energy transition. And so, uh, again, it's not what it's not just the renewable centricity of the products. It's the independence. And at the end of the day, the low cost, because we're able to take all those products and in normal times, help customers sell back to the grid and create a lot of value and keep reducing their bills when they have that. I would like to uh, maybe um, get the discussion moving towards IRA a little bit, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, because that's something in Europe uh, we look at. Um, your politicians are kind of scared by it because they think uh, it's going to attract a lot of investment that could otherwise go maybe to Europe. Um, and there's a very live debate what Europe's response should be. Um, and as there have been several policies um, you know, under the Repower EU uh, strategy that that, that uh, try to, I think, compete in part with, with IRA. Um, but there's also, of course, news around what the election could mean for IRA uh, going forward. Uh, but, you, I mean, from your position sort of being on the ground, working in the sector, what difference is IRA making um, in, from what you can observe? Uh, yeah, how reliant is the transition on IRA? And uh, yeah, what would happen if IRA got derailed following uh, an election result that would um, you know, result in, in a major uh, revamp uh, of IRA or perhaps even um, uh, you know, it being cancelled altogether, if that's even possible. Um, so, lots of questions there. But um, yeah, interested in your in your view on your perspective on on IRA. So, look, the, it's the Inflation Reduction Act is a game changing piece of legislation. The U.S. has never had an industrial policy. This is actually our first industrial policy, almost since World War II. And so, it allows us to really hyper focus on things that we find important. One of the things is COVID showed us how important supply chains are and having supply chains for the things that we want to accelerate into the energy transition is super important. So a big portion of the focus of the Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S. is how do we reward companies who are installing local supply chains, you know, battery manufacturing more EV production, uh, heat pumps, solar panel production. The challenge is we're still never going to be cost competitive to some Asian countries. And so how do you manage that complexity of encouraging local production and ensuring that it still has the right kind of cost competitiveness? Because at the end of the day, we need cost affordable hardware in order to have cost affordable solutions for customers. And so a big portion of of that uh, Inflation Reduction Act is thinking about how do we help organizations create, one, localized supply chains that are secure, and secondly, try to make it as cost affordable for the end-use customer. Because the more scale that we get in producing this hardware, the cheaper the hardware becomes for customers to go adopt it. So I think that's a big portion of it. The other thing that uh, I am very excited about in the Inflation Reduction Act is that grid-scale batteries in the U.S. are now uh, able to get the same type of uh, tax credits and support 
that traditionally wind and solar have been able to get. And so as we think about the energy transition, yes, we want to go create as much flexible usage as possible here at Octopus. Yet at the same time, batteries are an incredible supplement to that. Of course, that you know, step one is create the load flexibility. Step two is create batteries because that's a hardware solution instead of a software solution. But at least it's better than nothing. And so batteries coming onto the grid are uh, rapidly scaling. Uh, we now see gigawatts of batteries coming onto the grid or looking to interconnect into the grid. And so I think we're actually living in a kind of odd uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act. I think the energy industry knows a lot of the details of all the great stuff that enables us to go do. Because it's infrastructure, it takes time to go do it. And so citizens and end-use customers haven't really felt the benefits yet because we're still in the middle of building all the manufacturing. And so we're in this really tricky time where uh, there's been a lot of political capital used to go build it or to go move the, the law forward and, or create it into law and go create all the manufacturing. But the end use customers have yet to feel the benefits of it. And that will come over the next one to two years. And so we just need to kind of get to the other side of that equation. And I think once we do, we'll have a lot of customers coming onto this energy transition journey. Hi, everyone. Me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. But how do we get there? Are we? Is that a foregone conclusion? Is it just a case of the market sorting itself out? Or does there need to be a bit more regulatory um, intervention in order to do that? And is it a case of merely build it and they will come? Or do you need to have greater outreach to end users and customers, either households, but also industrial users as well? Look, it's an infrastructure problem and infrastructure takes time. Um, so we're going to we're going to get there. Uh, it's just going to take a little bit of time. I think also the opportunity just depends on the part of the country. Right. You know, different parts of the country, different types of heat pumps make more sense than others. Right. Given how vastly different the climates are between different parts of the country. We have different power market signals or sometimes none at all. Uh, and so how those signals develop will then encourage customers to take different behavioral actions. Um, and we have different velocities of interconnection uh, upgrades and interconnection for renewable energy. Here in Texas, again, that's one of the things that allow us to be in the epicenter of the transition. It takes 18 months to build a new uh, or to get through the interconnection study process. In the Northeast of the U.S., it could take five to seven years to get through that interconnection review. And so as we see renewables getting built out, we'll see the price signals to go do all this stuff. And then customers will say, wait a minute, yeah, I can get, I can lower my, this virtuous loop that we've built uh, at Octopus for smart demand will then be seen in many other markets as we see those price signals. And then complementary with that, I'll see all the manufacturing really come online at that time. So we're kind of in this, this phase where all everything is bubbling, but we're not quite bubbling over. But once we do, it'll be an incredible uh, journey for customers. I mean, one of the bubbles, of course, um, that is not quite bubbled over, perhaps, is um, the permitting and the timescales that it takes to build new utility-scale renewable projects. Um, I, you know, I, I've certainly read quite a bit of coverage about um, you, sort of lo local communities um, not wanting to host renewable projects, um, some of that getting quite politicized. Uh, but I also know, of course, that Octopus um, in Europe has projects where you kind of try to actually find people who are willing to um, you know, have a wind farm being built next to them and they get benefits in, when the wind is blowing, basically the electricity bills are cheaper. Um, it, you know, is, is this something you observe? Is this, is this a significant problem for 
um, you know the the bubbling up of renewable energy projects and um, the the actual deployment on the ground. I mean, you talked a lot about the kind of demand side technologies that can help consumers, but then there's there's still the, the you know the large infrastructure that we need on the supply side, uh, the, the large renewable generators, onshore wind, offshore wind, solar farms. Uh, to, you know, to what extent do you think that is a real hurdle to uh, scale up? You know, I think it depends on the state, right? So I think the Northeast of the U.S. and the coastal cities are quite similar to the challenges that you articulated, where uh, it's very dense populations. And so there's also very strict permitting requirements. And those two things when put together means that really any one person can uh, kind of refuse the project that's being proposed. And and that's quite a challenge to building on new projects, especially when the interconnection queue is already, like I said, five to seven years. You're talking about potentially a decade to build a single wind project. It's crazy. We, we are not going to decar. We're going to this world's going to burn down before we get enough projects built on that uh, timescale. And so, you know, part of the Inflation Reduction Act was a conversation around permitting reform. Uh, it feels like that may kind of be gone, uh, given the dynamics of <laughs> the federal government these days in the U.S. are quite interesting, as always. And so uh, the conversation has kind of moved on to a different crisis. Um, so I don't know if we're going to get the permitting reform that we were hoping for to kind of build more projects on, a, on the right kind of time frame. Then there's the middle of the country. Uh, and Texas kind of feels like that outside of the major cities like Dallas and Houston, where honestly, we have more land than we know what to do with sometimes. Uh, and so you can build massive solar farms and massive wind farms. In fact, again, I keep coming back to Texas. We we are now the uh, the country's largest solar uh, installation. We have more wind than everywhere else. We now have more solar than everywhere else. And a lot of it's because the permitting and the land availability and the resource is quite strong. And so that opportunity to build stuff quickly here in Texas has allowed us to decarbonize on a very quick and low cost basis. So I think you're going to find just different parts are going to have different tensions. And I suspect that if we don't figure out permitting and if we don't figure out interconnection reform, what we're probably going to have is everyone's going to go behind the meter. We're going to have uh, solar and batteries at almost every house that you can imagine on the distribution grid. Those are smaller little projects uh, and they're going to go everywhere because you can get kind of the same impact by having a thousand small projects as you could with one large project. And if you can do those thousand small projects in parallel, you can kind of be done with that in a matter of months instead of the one large project that may take years. And so I suspect what you're going to see is with all this friction, a move to what's happening behind the meter. But the companies that have the best relationship with those customers are going to be the ones who are able to most effectively talk about what it means to them, because behind the meter is a phrase that customers don't understand. But when you say, look, I can reduce your power bill significantly and I can help sell back the excess power to the grid and help you make money, that is something that customers do understand. And what sort of business models are you kind of using therefore in, in the US? Are you using energy as a service or and, and being able to install these panels yourself, for example, uh, and then selling that power yourself and, and gaining the, the revenue that way? Or are, are households able to purchase uh, their own sort of solar panels. What sort of uh, uptake are you seeing in that sort of space? So we do uh, both bring your own solar. Some customers go out and find their own solar. Uh, some have their own batteries. Others work with us and we work, you know, right now, you know, the footprint of Texas, Texas alone is three times the, uh, the, the size of the UK from a total land size. So we have a wide swath of customers that we need to go service. So right now we are working with local uh, partners in various different communities because that just allows us to go address such a large footprint uh, very, very quickly. Um, over time, definitely interested in bringing more of that in-house, uh, but that allows us to just have a lot of different scale in a lot of different places. Uh, what we're really doing is associating having solar, having batteries is you're not just a consumer of power anymore. 
you're actually a producer of power. And so what we see is that customers can follow things like, for example, we had a, a competition back in August, which we called Sunny Money. You know, it gets hot here. The, the heat's from the sun. There's actually quite a lot of uh, opportunity for customers to generate solar. But what's really important is finding ways for them to maximize their exports back to the grid. Think of a, think of a solar setup on your house as kind of like a waterfall. You, you, you generate all these electrons and anything that's consumed into the house kind of goes first. And anything that's remaining goes back to the grid. So we want to incentivize customers at the right times of the day to maximize what they're sending back to the grid, which means doing, you know, kind of what we like to call demand response, but actually it's much more than demand response, smart usage around those windows. So that way, yes, although you're producing your own power, what we really want you to do is maximize your exports back to the grid during that timing. And we've had some customers make $800, $900 for the month of August just for selling back at the right times. And they weren't actually the highest volume of kilowatt hours going back. They were just the smartest about the timing and sending that back to the grid. And so we can help them do that with batteries and automating that. If they have just simple solar, we can help them just smart use their uh, consumption in the house. But I think it's it's really reinventing that relationship with customers um, and talking about them with the things that they care about most, which is saving money or even better, kind of like Airbnb, but for solar and batteries on the grid. I would like to just ask a follow-up question about that because um, I think um, yeah, there's often a question about to what extent can this be done um, with all customers? Like, are we are we just seeing basically wealthy households buying batteries and solar and uh, going off grid? Um, uh, you know, running their electric vehicle on their huge solar panels, um, uh, and and then um, uh, your lower income households are kind of stuck with an increasingly expensive grid. That's sort of the narrative that I, I often hear. And um, to what extent do you think? Uh, the kinds of solutions you described could also, or maybe are already being being used, um, especially by lower income families who actually would benefit from the savings the most. I mean, for someone who is on a very high salary, you know, yes, your power bill might be higher than than it is in Europe, but it's still a relatively small fraction of your overall disposable income. Whereas for a low income uh, a customer, it, it, it's it's a very significant part of their disposable income. So the benefits. Are significantly higher. I'm, I'm curious you know, whether you have any specific programs working specifically with with low income customers, or what, what your thoughts are how we can spread those benefits much more widely and beyond the traditional, well educated, um, you know, very much um, uh, you know, upper middle class sort of customer segment. So that's a very important question, and let me uh, get to that while also giving you a little bit more context first. So the way the U.S. power markets work, in general, the ones where there's prices in wholesale power markets, those are those change every five to 15 minutes. And that's always based on where marginal supply and marginal demand intersect. And so having tools that create efficiency around where that auction happens, just a handful of megawatts during the most critical times can go from very expensive to very cheap, given the way that there's a nonlinear curve in the way power power markets work. And so by creating that demand flattening for the most expensive times, creates cost savings for everybody, whether or not you even participate in that demand response. So I think the holistic view is everyone benefits from active load management, right? It creates efficiencies in power markets. I guess, it, how about this? Large power plants, especially coal and natural gas power plants, do not benefit when we do this. Everyone else does benefit, especially consumers of power. So when we do stuff like this, whoever does it, yes, the individual who's doing the demand response gets some reward, but also everyone who participates as a consumer of power in the power markets for that particular piece of time, as well as, you know, that that lower cost is reflected as lower volatility and thus lower cost to everyone else going forward. So we actually see 
that value being shared in a lot of different dimensions, including with low-income households, uh, when we do demand response. Secondly is there's a lot of opportunity for people of all income to participate in these markets, right? So yes, of course, the hardware is expensive, especially on the solar and the batteries, but that's coming down quite rapidly. But that's not where we start. We actually, in Texas, start with the thermostat, you know, a Nest, an Ecobee. Again, we use about five to seven times more power than than most places in the UK because we have so much air conditioning usage. And once we electrify heat, honestly, a lot of places will look like Texas. We'll just use a lot more electricity going forward. So if you can manage that thermostat, which is only about $100, you can really manage a significant amount of cost for that customer. And so we see that with high income and low income customers saying, wait a minute, $100 thermostat and I can save several hundred dollars on my energy bill. That sounds like a pretty easy decision. And then secondly, then we start talking about things like EVs. One of the things that's really interesting in the Inflation Reduction Act is now there's a tax credit for those who are at medium and low income households to get a tax credit on buying a used EV. So now all of a sudden, we're able to kind of create a situation through our EV uh, through our EV unit within Octopus Energy, and we're able to say, hey, look, if you want to get a $200, $250 per month lease, which typically for an EV, it's maybe $800 for something new, we can create cost affordability for not just the vehicle, but also for the electricity that you put into it because it only costs five to eight dollars here in texas to fill that thing up with electricity and that's a lot cheaper than the petrol that you're typically putting in that vehicle so cost affordability is central i think to everyone of course low and medium income customers care about it the most but honestly like every customer that we interact with when we just start the conversation with we're Octopus and we're here to help you save money on your energy bill. And here's all these creative solutions to do it. We get customers that come along onto the energy transition journey just because that's actually the cheaper product when done with technology. That's really interesting. And uh, you mentioned a, f- a few different technologies there. We've, we've covered, we touched on heat pumps and EVs particularly uh, and demand response. Are there any emerging trends or technologies within the energy sector that you believe will really shape and and accelerate the energy transition and the industry's landscape? I see an opportunity for transmission and distribution to to be a lot smarter. Um, We, in the U.S., um, we are a very infrastructure-centric way of thinking about electricity. We're not a very tech-centric way of thinking about it yet. And we need to. We overbuild our transmission and distribution systems massively. If you were to get on a highway and saw 50% of the lanes completely closed during rush hour, you would, you would make a phone call to somebody and say, this is insane. One, why are we spending billions of dollars for uh, all these extra roads? And two, why aren't we using these roads more effectively, especially during the most congested times? And that opportunity to really unlock already built infrastructure through technology, maybe even through some price signals that allow for entities like us to figure out when is the right time, not just from the wholesale power market, but also around when does the network, both the transmission and the distribution network, have maximum excess capacity. And let's balance all three of these things. And that opportunity to really have a smart, that, that is like the literal smart grid. Uh, of course, it's got to start with the customer. But once we have a smart customer, we can then move into a world of a smart grid. And that allows us to really think differently about the energy transition going forward. So that's not a trend yet, but pretty much anytime I see the challenges of the future and conversations about how we need to get to decarbonization. If there's not a conversation around optimizing the already built infrastructure, then what we're really talking about is probably overbuilding the future infrastructure, and that's going to be very costly. Octopus Energy in the in, in the UK and in Europe have uh, often been involved in various partnerships uh, with other companies and, and uh, other collaborations. Is that something 
you're working on in the US and how important are collaborations, both in terms of the energy transition, but also your goals and uh, initiatives? You know, I'd say our collaborations are more around the hardware side. So we've uh, announced one with a company called Enphase. They do batteries and inverters. And so we are managing those assets in wholesale power markets, not just for energy, but we can help optimize for uh, ancillary markets as well. So I think a lot of our partnerships are like that. There's other ones that we haven't yet announced, but other partners that we are working with on the hardware side, whether that's thermostats or EVs, or again, other inverters for batteries and solar, those allow us to have um, great control softwares built into those partner platforms and allow us to kind of go do things that are interesting in the wholesale power market. So I think those, those are our types of partnerships that we get excited about here in the U.S. is working with innovative hardware vendors to unlock the full capability of their assets and really allow for wholesale power markets to see and to appreciate the millions and millions of different devices at the end use customer level. Absolutely. We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, One thing we ask all of our guests on what matters is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time? You know, I think we're we're at an opportunity where we need to make some real hard decisions, especially here in the U.S. We historically, as I've kind of been saying throughout this conversation, there's a lot of inertia in copying and pasting the status quo. And of course, the job of the regulatory environment is to be, um, you know, broadly conservative, lo- locate lowercase c, of like, Make sure stuff works and make sure it turns on. Um, but the the exponential growth and the rapid rate of change that is at our doorstep, you know, that is happening from the re- reindustrialization of the U.S. You know, we talked about the Inflation Reduction Act. We also have what's called the CHIPS Act, where we're building all types of semiconductors back into the U.S. We're manufacturing those now in the U.S. We have... Um, a lot of data centers being built. So when we think about you know, AI and all of these GPUs that are using way more electricity than historic uh, usage, we have just so many more data centers coming online. And then finally, we have the electrification of everything that's happening at the household level. And that doesn't require an interconnection request. That is just customers making a decision and just saying, look, I, I'm going to electrify my heat. I'm going to electrify my transportation. I'm going to electrify my hot water. So all of this demand is is growing rapidly, and we feel it first and foremost in Texas in that it's an energy-only market. So everything has a very bright signal and pricing of what that looks like. In other U.S. parts of the U.S., there's what's called a capacity market. And so that kind of mutes that price signal. It also kind of hides the problem of this load growth. And I think what we're going to see, you know, PJM, which is one of the large um, grid operators in the Northeast, they've kind of put out a call that, hey, Maryland may be having some troubles. This is near D.C. in the next year or two. Uh, New York City has kind of flashed the big red light saying, I think we're going to run out of power in the next couple of years. Like the markets have not fully appreciated the rapid growth of electrification that is a multi-decade trend. This isn't a once and done thing. This is a macro tailwind. And so we're talking about a a 2X, a 3X, maybe even a 4X of the amount of electricity used on a daily basis. Like that, that is an incredible growth. And we can't, we can't manage that with tools of the past. It is going to, we are, the, the system will cost a fortune for us to overbuild things the way that we're used to. And so as we think about the energy transition, people will make a choice to move to electric-based products primarily because it's cheaper. And so we need to keep finding ways as an industry to question, are we really doing a cost-affordable energy transition? And the way to do that is, one, hyper-focusing on customers because they'll definitely tell you if something is cost-affordable. But two, optimize the already built environment. That's demand response. That's you know 
everything that's happening at the local level. So we have an opportunity to really rethink how technology can optimize and automate and empower the already built environment, or we can use copper wire and steel and completely overbuild everything, which quite frankly, we're not going to do. If, that, if, if, if we do make that choice as a society, one, that's the wrong choice. And two, it's going to be expensive. And three, we, that's a physics problem. We're actually not going to be able to build that much going forward. In the U.S., as an example, 345 kV transformers have a two to four year backlog in order to get them on site. We, we just are not going to build large power plants as fast as we want to. And so our distributed future is the low cost future, but it requires markets to appreciate those products. It requires regulators to realize they're not going to be able to push a button to make things happen yeah. uh, in the way that they used to. And it's going to require customers to feel the benefits financially of coming along this energy transition. And, and those things all require kind of a new set of tools, a new set of culture, hmm. and a new set of technology that we at Octopus are trying to push all three of those things. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, really interesting uh, look at the sort of customer side of things uh, when it comes to the US uh, energy transition. Before we go, I'd like to quickly go around the table uh, and see what caught my eye in the last week or so. Jan, what caught your eye? So I noticed um, a, a new piece of research by the Global Fuel Economy Initiative uh, on the uh, market share of SUVs, uh, and it's now um, more than 50% for the first time. So there's some great analysis of what that meant for emissions from cars uh, and um, more in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, find a link there. Uh, Michael, how about you? What caught your eye? I was reading a report by a researcher out of Duke, and he was questioning why, again, I'm very Texas-centric, but why is Texas so much quicker than anywhere else to interconnect uh, renewables? And um, his, his takeaway was that we actually remove the transmission planning away from the interconnect side, and then we use location marginal prices to determine which projects should actually dispatch in that auction. And that efficiency creates low cost to interconnect, speed to interconnect, and low cost for customers. And uh, that is a fascinating report as other countries think about their own energy transition. I'm curious how we can all learn from each other on accelerating interconnection. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to read that report myself. Um, from my point of view, uh, I saw a news article from the UK about a company, uh, an interior design company, but it appointed a nature garden to its board uh, in order to sort of affect and consider long-term sustainability for any corporate decisions. Uh, it's the second company to do so uh, after a cosmetic company uh, that did the same in 2022. Um, and just thought it was a really interesting way of incorporating um, decarbonization and sustainability within uh, and embedding it within uh, board decisions and investment decisions, um, something I've been talking about a lot uh, recently. So yeah, really interesting uh, piece there. And again, you can find the link in our show notes. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Michael and Jan for joining us on What Matters. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Michael? I'm at the underscore Michael underscore Lee. And Jan? Um, I'm on at Jan Rosenau. And if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.